0: Welcome to Stories of Growth. A series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learnt along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated by the people behind these organisations, where they come from, and what drives them forward. For season five, we're moving into the world of web three and speaking to the people who are putting communities first in order to manifest a more equitable and decentralized future. In this episode, I chat with Joy Howard, ex-CMO of Patagonia, Sonos, and Converse, and now founder of Early Majority, a maker of technical outerwear for all eventualities and genders that's doing some really interesting things in the web three space. This was recorded in the Protein Discord, so make sure you follow our socials or visit Protein XYZ for all our other upcoming events. Welcome, Joy Howard, um, to, to Protein um, and to the Stories of Growth. Uh, I've been, <laughs> without being funny, Joy, I've been, I've, been, I've been looking forward to this for quite a long, quite a long time. You've, you've been on the list uh, of like, oh, who would be fucking awesome to get on Stories of Growth? It's like, yeah, Joy... Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I'm, I don't want to big you up too much because I think you, you, you your, your, stories will hopefully, um, you know, you know com- convey that experience and that depth and that knowledge, um, you know, on your behalf. Uh, but just for everybody else's benefit, Joy has had an illustrious, uh, you know, career, um, continuingly illustrious career. Um, at CMO of Patagonia, um, you know, Sonos, Lyft, Converse. Uh, yeah, some pretty big brands. Um, and now she's doing her own thing um, as a co founder, which is the bit that I'm actually most interested in. So, Joy, welcome. Um, really, yeah, really happy to have you here.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank you, Will. It's so good to be here. I'm so, so excited about what you are doing at Protein and everybody. You know, everything that you guys are doing, I think it's awesome, so it's really a thrill to be here.
0: Cool. Uh, mutual admiration. That's always the best way to start. <laughs> um why don't we sort of go in reverse? Um start with the latest and sort of go backwards. Um if that's cool. Uh yeah. and we'd just love to hear hear about early majority. Um you yeah, really What your plan is, um, firstly, and then, you know, maybe digging into sort of what, you know, what was the inception story uh, of sort of what was that itch that you were looking to scratch uh, that Mm. you were hopefully looking to achieve?
1: Sure. So Early Majority is an outdoor brand community at the intersection of nature, culture and technology. And (laughs) what we're trying to do is basically depart from the dominant industry model especially the dominant outdoor model by building a business that's based on growing a supportive community rather than proliferating unnecessary products and the first line of products that we've made is a system of technical outerwear that's multifunctional and modular uh, which basically just means that you you know if you get it you need you, you spend less time shopping and more time having fun outdoors and um, the community our commu- the community that we're building um, is basically a community where we support each other in leaning out. And this idea of leaning out is just basically the unfortunately radical notion that it's the system that's broken and not you. And since there's really nothing wrong with you, you might as well spend more time outdoors having fun. And when you're not doing that, work together to build something better, something different, something new that allows us all to succeed um, rather than feeling like we need to change ourselves to fit into some paradigm that's not really serving our interest. So that's what early majority is. Um, you know, it's, it really was born out of um, I think like so many businesses out of my own kind of, you know, frustrations with outdoor gear. Um, you know, uh, I specifically like had a very personal frustration around just not being able to get any outdoor gear that I could bike in you know it all seemed like it was made for alpinists or you know extreme endurance athletes and I always just really wanted something that I could you know bike to work in without looking like a kook and there was another frustration underneath that which is that so much of the outdoor gear it always seemed to really look great for guys but the women's stuff always looked really lame and when I would talk to other women about it, they would always nod their head and say, yeah, what is up with that? And, you know, I think I, I think through my time at Patagonia, I got to really understand why it was that way, but also why it didn't really have to be that way anymore. Um, but, you know, like any thread that you pull, you, you, you start to pull and the, kind of the whole tapestry, you know, starts to un, un, unweave itself, which really took me back to the very kind of core business model of outdoor apparel. Um, which is something that I know a lot from having worked at Patagonia, but also having worked at Nike and another consumer packaged goods company. So we can talk a little bit about business model innovation if you want to, because I know how much you care about growth and how you're trying to really rethink it. And that really, you know, the business model is really at the heart of that. So so that's what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, and I mean, well done. <laughs> Let's start with that. I mean, I, I know we had a chat a few weeks ago and there was some... How can I be polite? Yeah, some strains about launching a physical product business in a you know global supply chain meltdown. Yeah, um, yeah without sort of yeah you know, going too deep into it because I know it's painful, but I think it's it's really good context in this Web three predominantly digital world just to really understand the impacts of you know in in every sense the impacts of sort of bringing physical product in, into the world. And yeah, we'd just love to hear some more about that.
1: It's just been so radical. I mean, you know, when we started, we started the business in, in January of 21, and you know, at the time, I think, well, like everyone, you know, we thought that that COVID was a temporary thing, and and the supply chain's just been through like wave after wave of disruption, and so it's in the middle. It's 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 really, you know, we really just kind of did a swan dive into the middle of like the most you know, disruptive and chaotic time and supply chains ever. And it's been extremely challenging because of all the challenges that face everyone, you know, making anything physical in the world, which is that, like, you know, nothing is dependable anymore. Um, but that's also just a ton of opportunity to, to sort of rethink things and to try things in a different way, which we've had to do by necessity. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, you know, it's called on us to just be so resilient and so creative and so resourceful and just put us, you know, right at the very front of of, of all the change that's happening in physical manufacturing, which I think is at the end of the day, going to really benefit people and the planet. Um, but it's just, you know, it's like any change, there's some pain that comes with it. Yeah.
0: And if I may, I might sort of dovetail to Patagonia um, and, uh, Yo, know, and I think that was the first sort of time, you know, way back when, sort of worn wear, and and you had your um, Winnebago driving around the country fixing up people's fleeces um, that really sort of caught our eye at Protein. It was just like, oh, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> There's got to be a, a great brain and a great team behind that, and we'd love to dovetail into sort of a Patagonia maybe reference in terms of obviously their. Um, you know their goals, their amb- I mean their mission, right? In terms of mission-led businesses, you know B Corp um, advocates, uh, and you know, really, what is as a brand, and and I think especially as a as a fashion brand, you know your your responsibility, uh, you know, in the world, uh, if if you are bringing product, and yeah, we'd just love to hear a little bit more about your time at Patagonia.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm just going to take the entry to talk a little bit about worn wear because I think about it a lot lately. Mm. Especially, you know, when it comes to just, first of all, how scary it can be to do something that's new and different. And even, you know, even sometimes new ideas can actually be almost like repellent to other people. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing to think about, right? Like when you do something that's creative and is successful, everyone thinks like, oh my God, that's so obvious. But you know, a lot of people are, are actually repelled by things that are new and different. And when you have a new idea, it's just important, I think, to remember that you're going to encounter all kinds of reactions and opposition. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And and Warnware is a good example of that because it was so controversial, you mm-hmm. know, within the company at the time. I mean, they're really, you know... I think any company that you walk into, you're going to find that there's just all kinds of ideas sort of swimming around. And the art is to say, OK, you know, these are the ones that we're going to really nurture. And, you know, these are the, the flames that we're going to fan, you know, if you will. And and warmware was was definitely that for me. Um, but, but I think a lot about how, you know, at the time there was not a single brand that was selling anything secondhand online. And it was just a huge controversy in the company. Like everyone thought it would cheapen the brand, you know, and it would be, you know, just kind of devastating to the quality that we'd worked so hard to build as a company and a brand. And of course now, you know, everybody does it. So, yeah. you know, it's really, you know, it's just, I just really remember that. And 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 I think what gave me the courage to to kind of push through on it was first of all, you know, just the belief of the the advocates within the company. There was like one young woman who since started her own company um, who was advocating for it. And it was, it wasn't even really connected to something that was actually a Tumblr blog at the time where people were just sending in their stories. And then there were a couple of ambassadors that were like republishing the stories. But, you know, I saw in that the opportunity to stitch that together into something bigger because you know, I believe that people people take a kind of pleasure in their work and seeing the impact of what we do physically on things, you know, and the image that always stuck with me when I was working on that project was just, you know, you probably see this a lot in Europe where people walk upstairs and you can see how the stairs are kind of worn mm-hmm. and, and, and the kind of weird sort of pleasure that you get from seeing, you know, footsteps after footsteps have kind of walked up these stairs. And it was really just kind of that insight that that's somehow deeply pleasing to us you know, that gave me the kind of energy to push through on that project. Um, But obviously, you know, it also really mattered because of the belief. and, And it's just a fact that, you know, the best garment, the most sustainable garment is the one that you never make, that never exists. And so, you know, reselling and repairing clothes just seemed like an obvious, like a really obvious way to manifest that mission. You know, even at the same time as the entire growth logic of the company works against that. And so that's really what we're trying to unlock with the early majority is to is to really say, you know could we grow a company you know by just adding more community members instead of always adding more product categories like that's just the simplest question that we're asking at the mm-hmm. heart of of this experiment
0: and let's unpack that because that is the core to the business model, right and would love mm-hmm. just for you to explain what well, <laughs> I think we understand why you landed there, based on what we've just been talking about. But you know, I mean, there's commercial considerations here, right? In terms of really, you know, just rethinking how, yeah, how it's even structured um, and how revenues are generated, how you can even forecast. I mean, anything, <laughs> right? Um, Would yeah, we'd love to just like how. I mean, how you even pitched it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this I is mean, this is one way of doing it, but then this is actually yeah. a completely different way of doing it.
1: I mean, let's be clear: like commercial considerations is a euphemism for existential considerations, right? Like that, the com- the commercial enterprise is the heart of the enterprise, and so that that I, I think the only reason I was able to pitch it is because I wanted to try to flip it on its head and see if we could build something that's completely different there's not only you know an established way of doing things commercially but there there is an entire marketing infrastructure built around that business model right so like the entire web 2.0 you know marketing infrastructure is just built there for you to push product into and for that you know you know google facebook instagram to basically manufacture demand in response to that so it is it is really a radically different way of going to market and, you know, we're building it actually in, in, in doing exactly what you and I are doing right here by, by forming connections with like-minded communities. I actually think that this, you know, the kind of, you know, air quotes communities that have thrived in the Web 2.0 space are really just kind of like algorithmically sorted, lowest common denominators of ourselves. And then what's happening in Web 3 is that we're forming more intentional communities with each other and that is going to be a new way of doing business. And so, you know, what we're doing right now is very core to how we plan to actually grow the business.
0: No, I love that. And um, I mean, just coming back to that, the, the, the product side and and that frustration. And I know you've spent some time in Amsterdam and, you know, and the, the bikes are, I mean, it's a way of life, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah, again, just, just, just touching on really that you know the, the product side of the of the model and really how those two are, are interlinked and uh, you know any decisions that you've you've had to make or or you know or compromises you've had to make uh, you know in in your current journey
1: yeah uh, well you know like understanding the business model of apparel was really really helped me understand why I didn't have the thing that I wanted to wear yeah <laughs> and sure. and first of all you know like ditching your car for a bike is one of the most radically positive moves you can make in the world. And yet that activity somehow doesn't exist as a, as a legitimate sport in the world of, you know, action sports or outdoor activities. It always seems kind of, you know, it, it, it just like, it never gets any kind of legitimacy. I feel like in any sort of storytelling, even though people who adopt that as a way of life, for me it's been incredibly liberating and probably also you know for anyone who's who's done it. So you know it's just like it doesn't fit neatly within the marketing narrative of most of the companies that are making apparel but also you know it like really part of why there's so little product that really fits the needs of people that do something simple like bike to work every day has to do with the different kinds of you know categories that are created. And especially like, you know, sportswear companies, right? So, you know, and and, and really Nike was the one that kind of cracked this. And I learned a lot about this when I was working there, which is, you know, they call it the category offense. And what they meant by that was, you know, let let's do in basketball what we did in running, right? And then what we do in basketball, let's do that in soccer, and then let's do it in football, and then let's do it in golf. And that has been an incredibly successful growth driver for them. It's just like, let's make these very specialized costumes for every activity and then let's go out and market them you know in a way that makes people feel like very special and like they have to have this thing to do that activity and it's just been you know it's been an it's been a formidable growth driver but also it's had a disastrous impact on the planet and when that growth model was adopted by the outdoor industry it was also very successful in terms of driving a lot of revenue but very frustrating from the experience of the shopper who's like, hey, you know what, I just want a waterproof jacket that I might want to go climbing in, but I also might want to ride my bike in or I might want to walk my dog in or I might want to, you know, wear it to dinner. That, just that whole kind of behavior can't be allowed within that kind of business model because it's anathema to the growth logic of it.
0: No, it's amazing. And, <clears throat> you yeah, know, this is the disruptive world that we, you know, currently inhabit and you know, segueing into web three, if I may, and, you know, challenging those models, you know, one side on the product and the supply chain and, you know, your your the business model, right? The revenue model for membership. Um, you yeah, know, we'd love to move that into a web three world and, you know, aid sort of your your rabbit hole moment, I think everybody's got their rabbit hole story, their crypto pill story. Um, mm-hmm. And then how that then manifested in early majority and, and and you know, maybe some of the tensions that came, you know, a- along that journey, uh, in terms of what it is, you know, what it isn't, some of the perceptions, some of the utility. Uh, yeah, again, we'd just love to, you know, h- hear that part of the journey.
1: Yeah, well, we already, you know, we already had this, I mean, actually, I think a lot of people have come into Web3 through the creator economy. So, you know, I think even you mentioning that you had your newsletter on Substack, like that was, that's how we started the company is as a Substack newsletter. And through the newsletter, we started to flesh out, you know, the ideas for the business and the ideas for the brand and the community and the membership model. Um, And so we were sort of, you know, grappling towards like what would be a different model at the same time as I, I I really honestly, you know, I think my first interaction with, with, with Crypto Period or Web3 was through Friends with Benefits. And, you know, early on, I got interested in what they were doing with Zora. But I encountered so much friction, actually, you know, even just like getting a wallet set up or it just did not seem worth it to me at all. I was interested. And as soon as I got a taste of just the absolutely terrible UX that was, you know, every... <laughs> Every touch point, I was like, oh, no, I don't have time for this." You know, like there's there's a world to save out there, you know, and I'm like, not going to mess around with this. But I think what really caught my attention was actually listening to artists talk about, you know, feeling left out of Web 2.0 and 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 the determination that artists had to find new ways to you know capitalize on their creations and 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 not be sort of you know at the tail end of the value chain that that's the thing that actually really caught my attention about it and then i kind of checked back in with fwb and saw that you know in the 9 months that i had had you know kind of ignored them they had started to really build a community that was just honestly having fun mm-hmm. and i think that was when i realized like oh everybody thinks this is stupid but actually it's because people underestimate how important it is to have fun and they underestimate just how much innovation comes out of just like playing and having a good time with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's kind of how I got back into it. And then I realized like, oh, okay. You know, then of course I got into DAOs and we've joined the C-Club Accelerator. And then I realized, oh, there are, there's a whole community of people who are trying to build alternative models, alternative institutions, alternative structures and systems. And it looks like fun. And actually, that's probably how it's going to unfold.
0: Yeah, one dower, one dower created every gifter, every gifter at a time, right? Um, exactly. but, but but it's it's so true. And um, you know, come for the product, stay for the community. Like all the cliches are, are there. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, we'd love to just well, as <laughs> so I think you know we we publish a series of reports called Dirty Words and you know really the role you know as marketeers through our agency business is just to redefine these meaningless words because we've used them so often and you know in such broad context they've you know they've effectively lost, lost all meaning and community is one of them um and uh we're, we've done one on influence on exclusivity our next one's on ownership actually which i'm going to chat about in a, in a second but you know We'd love just that role of community and maybe, I mean, yeah, defining community. I mean, how would, what does community mean to you, Joy? Let's start with that.
1: Okay. Well, to me, it means that you bind your self-interest to each other. So it's, it's about, it's about mutual self-interest. And, and I think that's what, you know, that, that, that's really what makes a token almost magical is that it's a binding of our self-interest And, and, and that I think that's something that we should really embrace because it it is actually just the whole kind of, you know, late stage capitalism, neoliberal kind of ideology that's resulted in the epidemic of loneliness, but all the other sort of mental health challenges that people have that somehow are worsened by this belief that like, it's our fault that we're this way, or we can solve it ourselves. And there is just this profound, um, you know, sense of well-being that can come from connecting with and helping each other. And I, I actually think that that's the most motivating force, you know, of our time is that people have moved past this whole, oh, you know, self-actualization narrative. And we want to, we want to do things together and help each other. And, 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 and because I think we've just sort of reached the logical end of that way of thinking, and we're ready to to create something, you know, to create what's next together. So I, you know, I think it, you know, I think we, we're going to have to create more intentional communities and work together to solve, you know, the problems that we want at a, at a macro level. But I also think, you know, very much at an individual level, we need that, you know, we, people feel, you know, challenged, they feel precarity, they feel alone and that reaching out and connecting with each other and the degree to which that can actually just help us as individuals, I think is so profound. And, you know, that's like, that's sort of the core animating ideology for the brand around lean out, you know, which is that lean in was kind of this narrative of like, you can do it too, if you just try hard enough. But now everyone is kind of called bullshit on that. And we don't really even want to do that anymore, right? We want to find ways to work together with the people that we like to do things that we enjoy that we can be proud of and that enrich our lives collectively.
0: Yeah, no, subscribe to that. And I mean, what's the role of brands in community? It's coming back to our dirty words, analogies, yeah, it's definitely becoming more, you know, prevalent. And there's a lot of chat and community 3.0. And you know, what's what's the question here? It's it's it. Yeah, we are in a brand world. I don't think anybody can escape that. Um, but you know, just to really and, and especially coming from your your past of working with some of the you know the world's biggest brands, and you know, really authentically, or, or or sorry, authentically really like just positioning community through a lens of a brand, right? Where, where, where do you sit with that?
1: Well, I think brands have always played a profound role in this and I think they always will. And I think it's very, um, I just think it's very, you know, it, it's like that because of just how humans are, you know, it's like brands are, brands are shortcuts. They're like cognitive hacks, right? Because we're, we're always seeking to conserve energy. I think that's just kind of like, that's, part of our evolutionary biology. And so, you know, brands are, are ways of signaling to each other so much more than a word could ever say. And so, you know, at its highest level, when you see a brand on someone, you're seeing someone with whom you either want to connect or, you know, by whom you're repelled. And there's a reason for that, right? Like, We're always seeking to attract the people that are going to be more most enriching to us and also to repel the people who are going to be most dangerous or the least um, kind of enriching to our lives. And I think, you know, brands are always going to play a really important role in that just because we're cognitive misers. I mean, obviously, on a cultural level, they play, uh, you know, an even more profound role because they allow us to resolve these like really profound, you know, cultural contradictions at the level of the self. And we're always feeling so so many of those contradictions. And so we're always going to look to brands as a way to, you know, kind of solve them. You know, I would say like, and what, t- what you and I have worked on over the years as brands, you know, that's usually been through a one-way consumption act, right? So like I consume this and in the act of consuming it, I'm resolving this contradiction for myself. I'm making myself feel better about whatever anxiety I have and picking up from culture. But I think now brands are evolving into a place where that doesn't have to be, you know, such a one-way single-use kind of consumptive, you know, act. And it can be something that's more regenerative and and circular and and communal.
0: Yeah, no, so true. And it it doves quite nicely into you know what we're now looking at in a web three context of community. And and you know, community means so many different things to so many different people in so many different ways, but yeah, what we're really looking into in the next report is around ownership, and and again, <laughs> it's a pretty big word. It's a dirty word. Um, you know, really, what does what does ownership mean? Yeah, you know, from a brand perspective, and yeah, that's that's pretty tough when you go to the big guys and saying, well, are you going full DAO? Like, is this going to be you know full governance? Right? You know, voting rights attached to these tokens? Um, are you even going to launch a token?" um yeah you know, so i think and there i don't think there's any expectation that the big established web2 brands will fully adopt sort of a web3 mindset but you know i think right now there's a really interesting yeah you know, it's it's a pivot right it's definitely a turning point uh in terms of web3 as an enabler of you know decentralized ownership and um and different people are really approaching it in different ways. And obviously there's different tech layers that, you know, are facilitating this through sort of DAO tooling, but yeah, I would love to sort of get your view on, on ownership, I guess, from a macro level um, and, and your sort of, it's your, your view on it, your relationship with ownership. Um, and, and then on a specific, you know, community early majority level uh, in terms of how you're you're implementing it or even allowing it um you know within your community
1: oh my god i thought we were going to talk about growth which i'm sure we'll still come back to <laughs> but you know it's what all are, it's it's
0: all related joy yeah it's
1: so related well it's so related um so I, I actually just want to talk a little bit about like my own personal journey to the, to, you know, when it comes to ownership, because, sure. you know, I I worked in really big companies for, you know, probably like my, you know, the first 10 years that I was in business, because I had a career as an artist before I was in business. But my first 10 years in business, I worked at really big companies, you know, the blue chips, the big ones, right? And I I always felt a great sense of ownership over my work but not the company or the value that I was generating. You know, I was essentially like, you know, what people used to call a salary man, right? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like a wage laborer. And it wasn't really until I went to work for a startup that I understood that I could be a part owner of the company. And, you know, that that was actually joining Sonos, which was still, you know, even though they were, you know, they'd not yet yet cracked a billion in revenue, still ran like a startup in the way that they compensated employees and executives which was with very little cash and a lot of equity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it didn't, it actually, you know, I think it took me several years to really understand what that meant, you know, because uh, maybe because I was just very cynical or distrustful. But on some level, you know, I had had enough success that I felt like, you know what, I should get more of the upside. (laughs) And it was just very kind of you know it was just at that level like i'm 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 you know i'm generating a lot of success for these companies i would like to benefit you know have a have a stake in the upside but i think once i got inside of a company like that that had a really strong ownership culture among employees i just saw how powerful it was for for innovation for 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 building the culture of the company you know, it, it just you know it it energized and motivated me in a way that I I've, I've always done my best work, but I just I think it just like t- took it to the next level for me because I felt such a profound stake in the in the success of the company, and I kind of really got hooked on working in that kind of company. Like I just love the energy that comes from feeling. A, a level of collective ownership. Of course, it's not all the same. People have different amounts of equity. That's always going to be the case. And of course, investors, you know, take less risk than employees do. But you know, we are all bound together in that way that I feel like uh, just forges a, a, a collegiality and a, and a way of working together that that I find to be you know very energizing. Um, and so that that's eventually what led me to want to start my own company is because I like that. I like that shared, um, you know, that shared purpose that comes from, from owning something together. Um, so it's only, and, and actually it wasn't, you know, in the very beginning when we started, when we first started early majority and we were like thinking about how to build the community, we wanted to think about like, could we give a share to everyone who bought a membership and, That was very complicated and hard to execute. And it was right about the time when they were thinking like, wow, this is going to be really hard to do that I discovered DAOs and how DAOs worked. And also right about the same time that the ENS airdrop happened, which for people who aren't very deep into the space, it's basically, I mean, I'm not going to do a good job of, of describing it, but it's basically you know, when Ethereum decided to basically airdrop value to everyone who had been participating in that network. You, you can probably describe it better than me, Will, right? Because you're deeper into the space. But, I mean, how did I do describing that? I
0: mean, that's close enough, but yeah. <laughs> okay. It was, well, a, it was a moment, you know, it was I a mean, moment for sure. And I think just if I may add, the, um, the, why, why it's a good reference is because it was completely by surprise. And you know that in the context of your you know the story you've just told of being an employer with an employee within a you know an employer owned business, you know, completely changes the changes the script because previously ENS, you know it was a service. it's where you went to buy your dot .E domain name, you paid for it and it's like great, just like you'd buy you know a .com domain from GoDaddy. but then suddenly you get dropped tokens and you're now part of like partly owned the whole system and you can delegate. It's like, wow, just completely different relationship with that service, which yeah, is ultimately what web three can enable, um, is, is enabling, um, which was why I think there's, there's so much interest in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically, you know, a light bulb went off for me when that happened and, and I realized, okay, this could have happened to everyone who's ever worn a pair of Chuck Taylors, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and in the future, it is going to be this, you know, and it's going to be that way with early majority, like, every, you know, everyone who has subscribed to our newsletter has gotten something special and they will get something more special and they will get something more special. And the people who come in next will get something more special. And it's like, that is, that's how we're operating now is thinking about, okay, with this next thing that we can, can that we do, how can we make it more special for the people who were already here first? Like, how can we continue? That's almost like the game that we're playing of like, how can we continue to reward and reward and reward the people who join us on this adventure, who sign up for the mission, you know, who are here with us since the beginning. And that is like very different and very fun way to try to build and grow a business. But I, you know, I think that one of the reasons that it resonated with me so strongly is actually because of my work on Chuck Taylor, Um, And I don't know, you may, may or may not remember this, but like, you know, Chucks originally were like these performance basketball shoes. And then they became, then when Nike kind of like took off in the, in the world of like high performance basketball sneakers, Chucks became this kind of like ironic sneaker that the punks and the outcasts wore almost as like, you know, you know, as a way of like, you know, sticking it to the man and sort of like taking the piss out of like all these, you know, jocks. And, you know, it was basically, you know, punks, musicians, artists, you know, it was all of them wearing Chuck Taylors that made that brand so iconic. And so growing the brand was just about giving back to that community, which we did by, you know, opening a recording studio and, you know, sponsoring music festivals and things like that. But how cool would it have been if everyone, you know, if if Andy Warhol, when he painted a pair of Chucks, like somehow became a part owner of that of that brand after doing that. And 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 I think that's what what this grand experiment is is gonna enable.
0: No, no, I fully subscribe to that. And 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 so what does that look like practically for um, for early majority and you know and good drop on the mailing list sign up. I've just signed up. I think I've already signed up. I'm I'm signing up again to make sure I don't miss any of your alpha <laughs> any more of your alpha drops. So you've like queued that up. <laughs> But I mean what yeah. do, how what um was the question what do you get like how how are you implementing sort of an ownership or you know if if you are and 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 how are you in 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 a, in a practical sense
1: Well I think that we're like so so first of all we're doing it very mindfully and carefully and you know working closely with C Club to figure out what's the right way to do it for us because you know, if it if it is an advance, like it has to advance the environmental mission of the company mm-hmm. and goes right back to that beginning idea of like, how can we grow in a different way? So, so that and how can we flip the existing apparel industry on its head and make it, you know, less destructive to the planet? And, you know, that that takes you into a lot of like really, you know, deep questions out of the gate. Right. Because the primary and very sensible objection that most people have to the space is. The environmental impact of cryptocurrency which is terrible mm-hmm. and you know so there there's a lot of things that we have to think through because we don't just you know we're not just trying to mint a, a novelty right we're trying to create a way of people actually having a stake in a business and 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 that grows in value over time so there are choices that that forces us to make so we we have we haven't yet announced what we're doing but we're going to be announcing it soon Um, And I think you can see some of the clues of how we're approaching it in the garments themselves. So we have already revealed on the site that the badges are NFT enabled. And so you can start to see that the badge functions almost as sort of like a a docking slip for self-identity or something that gets you on the allow list. So that's why we're stressing to people who are subscribers, you know, go ahead and activate your membership account, claim your badge. Because the badge will play a critical role in the unfolding of, the, of, of everything that we're doing. Um, sorry, Joe, so, if I may,
0: because yeah. this was a, a burning question. what is an NFT enabled badge? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Well, and, and it, it, it's something that I made up
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> Work in marketing, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I do, I do. But it, it, it exists. And it's basically um, it's it's basically a chip in, in is in the badge that you can uh, tap your phone to to claim to claim a token. Ooh. That's what it is. It's, it's a way of connecting the digital and physical uh, properties of the community.
0: So like an RF- really, R- RFID sort of chip type thing. Uh, NFC. Is the NFC. Technology. Okay, great. Yeah, mm-hmm. sweet. Nice. I like it. Sorry, keep going. <laughs>
1: um yeah so 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 that that that's what we've that's what we're doing so far i mean there's some other things that we have in the works but i think i want to wait and kind of like you know tease those out over time and just suggest that if people want to follow along they kind of get in the discord and follow us on twitter it's going to all unfold there very soon Hmm. i expect we'll announce what we're going to do in the next week or two like yeah
0: okay Tantalizing. Okay, uh, no, that's so awesome. And I think on all the different levels, um, well, I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground. But yeah, you know, the constant here is is purpose and mission. And you know, from Patagonia to Early Majority, yeah, you know, there's 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 always been also in those two case studies a really clear role of 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 why the brand is on the planet and that you know is you know, it's true to us in terms of our goals as, you know, as protein and our good growth ambitions and, you know, asking these tough questions, which is what we call them in, in, in protein. I was like, well, why is that? And why isn't it that way? And what are we going to do about it? And, you know, that is really, you know, what we've found is that's the galvanizing piece that is really bringing together, you know, like minds to start answering some of these questions. And and that to me is incredibly motivating and, you know, just really fucking exciting <laughs> in short. So, um, yeah, I applaud you, Joy. This is, um, yeah, it's really good to see it. And obviously we're, we're going to be tracking closely. Um, yeah, do it. We, we'd love to sort of keep going back. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, Oh, you, yeah, we you, spend a lot
1: of time on no, right now in the future.
0: No, 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 <laughs> no but you, you, you dropped a little thing that I hadn't, picked up in my research is sort of your first ten years as an artist. Um would love love to hear about Joy the Artist.
1: Oh gosh. Well, okay, so that's pretty straightforward. So so basically and when I you know I I, I originally I was working on actually even before that I was working on my PhD in semiotics, which is makes sense for me to end up in branding after doing that. Obviously. But I was in a band and the band that I was in got signed basically. And and you know, it was sort of like a, um, you know, uh, I kind like of like a shoegaze band, basically. So we were part of the uh, post Nirvana indie major label gold rush. So okay.
0: after Nirvana,
1: all the major labels thought they could like you know make you know make them a ton of money signing indie bands, and they bought up lots of indie labels. And we had been signed to this label called Two Pure, which is actually a British label that put out PJ Harvey and Stereolab, who were like, you know, two of my very favorite bands. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, this was a very analog kind of undertaking, right? So, like, I mailed them a cassette tape demo, snail mail. And then they, you know, they got the cassette tape and they called me and left a message on my answering machine (laughs) with the British accent telling me that they really liked the demo. I mean, it was just a kind of a fairy tale. And, and and it was really fun and extraordinary until it became very clear that that was going to be a really hard way to make a decent living for the mm-hmm. long term, um, even doing as well as we could have dreamed of doing, you know, at every single step of the way. And, and I think, you know, what was happening, it, it was not it, all that was happening at the time was like, wow, this is crazy. It's really, you know, it's very hard to make this whole thing work. But now when you look back with the you know benefit of hindsight and history you can see that was basically 1999-2000 and that is when the bottom fell out of the music industry yeah. and you know Napster came out and it was like oh yeah nobody's making money and and actually nobody made any money in music you know for the next 10 years like the the entire value of the music industry got cut in half over the next 10 years and it didn't mm. start to grow again until 2010 and then it became a viable industry, you know, really with the advent of Spotify and streaming, like around, you know, around with the real takeoff of that business model. But, you know, that that was a an experience of being, you know, really disrupted by technology and and, and, real, and not really understanding what was happening at the time, right? Like I only really understood fully what was going on, you know, probably, you know, ten or twenty years later when I really looked at the evolution of the music music business and what had happened. But but yeah, that was it in a, nu- in a nutshell, basically. So we recorded four albums. And, you know, then when I realized, like, okay, this is going to be a, a terrible way to make a living and I'm not going to have health insurance, I, um, <laughs> I applied to business school. And um, yeah, I got a full fellowship to business school. And I went to one of the very first programs in Sustainable Enterprise, which was at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, there, I think there was like two programs in the world on Sustainable Enterprise. It was this like very weird and wacky thing to do at the time. Um, and that's how I started in business.
0: Sweet, amazing. All right, three really important questions. Um, mm-hmm. what was the name of your band? Um, what did you play in the band? And can we listen to your band anywhere now?
1: Yes. So the name of the band was Seely S W E L Y, And there's we put out four albums, but only two of them are on Spotify. A third is on Apple Music. I played uh, bass and piano and I sang, so you can hear it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd rather just send you a playlist to put in the show notes, to be frank, because <laughs> okay. what I really needed at the time was an editor. You know, it's like the albums are as long as a CD could take and they really only needed to have like a third of the songs on them. So mm-hmm. you should just make your playlist, Will.
0: Okay, I will take you off on that. Um, I'm looking for it now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Okay, I'm going even further back now, Joy. So pre-college, what, what was what was young Joy's outlook on life? You know, what, was was that future, you know, clear that you're going to become a rocker, or is this kind of hazy in terms of where you felt you might end up?
1: I think I think it's always been pretty hazy. You know, <laughs> I'm I I'm, I'm basically am I'm just, you know. I'm just, I am feel like I'm just really lucky that I've been able to pursue the things that energize me and that are interesting to me and, you know, just continue to do interesting things. But before I went to college, oh, my God, Will. I mean, you know, I grew up in the rural South. And so it was th- – those, those were really weird times. Specifically where? Um, in a small town outside of Savannah, Georgia. So I was born in Savannah.
0: Okay, amazing.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I think I always had a – I had a leadership streak in me, you know, which some would have called bossy, right? I mean, you know, that's like what what people used to call little girls when they tried to be leaders is like bossy. Um, So maybe I always had a little bit of that in me. But I also had just, I was also just very um, uh, driven to understand what was at the heart of the injustice that was around me. I mean, there was a lot of poverty in the South, a lot of racism and that that made a really big impression on me growing up and i just always wanted to be a part of the solution to that because um it just was a terrible thing to grow up around you know yeah i wanted to fix it and and and, and actually i mean i was very you know um moved not by the not not only by the injustice, but like really inspired by you know civil rights leaders and you know people that took a leadership role in solving those kind of problems. Like those were the people that I really looked up to growing up.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that I'm assuming was you know, encouraged by your folks, um, your brothers and sisters. Like, what, what was what, what was sort of the you know the vibe in the in the Howard household?
1: Oh, man, I had a very atypical family um, because my grandfather was the warden of the Georgia State Penitentiary, Um, and he was, he and my, you know, my mother, as a result, were anti-racist. And part of why he was that way was because the electric chair was at that prison. So that's where, you know, that's where everyone that was executed got sent to be executed. And I think just growing up, like, so close to that, um, you know, because the warden lived on the—actually, if you've ever seen the the movie called The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds, like, that's filmed at the prison where I grew up. Um, but I think, you know, for him, like, that was a political appointment to be the warden of the prison. And so, you know, I, I just think for him to see that, you know, every day and obviously, like, you know, the people that he saw executed— were mostly black men. And, and actually that really affected him and affected my family. And even more than that, he was really affected by very young men getting executed. Like that was the thing that really, really, um, you know, troubled him and, and should trouble anyone, you know, I mean, America is very different, right? Because the death penalty is, you know, it's still there, but when you grow up really close to it, it leaves just a huge, huge mark on your life because you also meet people, you know, who were in prison that you, you, you meet people who were guilty and who have clearly changed their lives and you meet people whose guilt is in question. And um, you know, that, that kind of injustice is just, it's, it's just a terrible thing to, to see. And it makes you, makes you really want a world where none of that exists.
0: Incredible story. And, you know, do you feel that was, you know, formative in terms of those early experiences and in terms of your outlook and yeah. your ambitions of oh sort of pu- purpose driven. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because it's like, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's going against the, you, you see your, your your family go against the grain in a way that's, that's very uncomfortable or very different. And so it causes you to look at things, you know, just differently from, from the get go. Um, And and I think also, you know, having, you know, having, I think there, there's such a model for, you know, Southern men and, and obviously like, you know, Southern white men are are this way or, you know, and, and the stereotype is often, you know, sadly true, but, you know, seeing, seeing someone like with my grandfather who had so much compassion and so much empathy, um, it just, you know, I don't, yeah, it was, it was, it very much impacted me and, and, and made me want to be a force for, for goodness in the world. I'll just tell you that, you know.
0: Yeah. And as we said, like, it gives you that, you know, that confidence, you know, if, if you're, you know, your, your role models in that formative years are very much challenging the, the system. Yeah. You know, it's also giving you permission to, you know, to follow suit, right? As you make your own journey into the world. No, it's, yeah. And, it, and, it,
1: and, and, that's right and you can do it in all kinds of ways will and and I one of the things I learned from that is to really respect people's contributions in whatever way they make them you know like one of the stories about my grandfather is that he you know he got reprimanded because when Martin Luther King Jr was put in in the prison he you know he had to lock him up and so When he got brought to the prison, you know, my grandfather basically walked him to his jail cell and shook his hand and, you know, made sure that, I mean, he was a a hero to so many people and just made sure that he was, you know, treated with the respect that he deserved and, you know, shook his hand. And I think that, you know, that the... The news that he had shaken his hand when he put him into the jail cell had like traveled back to the Capitol and became this, you know, source of like, you know, my grandfather getting in trouble and getting reprimanded and just, you know, that it is such a, such a basic gesture of humanity to shake someone else's hand and, you know, and some would say a very small gesture, right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for him and his life and the, and the way I looked at him, it was, it was tremendous.
0: Wow, oh, Joy! What a great story. Um,
1: I mean, you asked, <laughs> No,
0: no, I love it. That's why we go back, Joy. <laughs> I'm, I'm always, always curious to hear the, uh, you know, where these little threads and these little themes and uh, these little behaviours are all sort of they all they all come from somewhere. Um, they do. Yeah, for sure. Um, just conscious of time, um, uh, there is a question in the channels uh, asking about a book recommendation that covers the intersection of the economy, the environment, and social justice. If you mm. have one or two. Or yeah, might, actually, might
1: I, I, really, I have a lot of them. I mean, I recommend two right now. Right. Uh, one of them is uh, The Book of Trespassing by Nick Hayes, which talks about... Well, actually, I'm going to recommend three. So The Book of Trespassing by Nick Hayes, it was a big bestseller in the UK, but I don't think anyone in the US has ever heard of it. And it's about the enclosures and how... You know, our separation from the land um, was, you know, kind of the beginning of colonialism and imperialism and our separation from nature into the land today. Right. So the Book of Trespassing is really good. Um, Caliban and the Witch is Sylvia Frederici is a great book to read about um, the witch hunts. And sort of, again, I'm really obsessed with how our separation from the land is kind of at the root of so much injustice in the world. Um, Also covers um, imperial and colonial expansion um, and the slave trade. And then um, the third one that actually the book of Trespassing is very helpful because it it basically you realize that that actually just hiking around and trespassing is like a a powerful but also very fun form of activism. But the third book um, that I recommend is David Graeber's um, last book called The Dawn of Everything which is of, which is an alternative history of humanity and human civilization that doesn't try to trace it in this kind of, you know, um, like evolutionary history that ends with today is somehow the best outcome because clearly it's not. It goes back and it uses, you know, a lot of the discoveries of anthropology in the last 20 years have not really been used to kind of update our understanding of human history. And when you look at a lot of the things that we've discovered over the last twenty years in archaeology and anthropology, you'll see so many more hopeful chapters in our history of ways that we've organized ourselves that um, were, were were better for everyone, you know, yeah. whether it's whether it's gender equality or you know um, ecological viability it's it's one of the most hopeful books i've I've read in my life, and I really encourage it you to read it.
0: Amazing. Um, <clears throat> those sound all fantastic recommendations and just a couple of final questions, uh, Joy, um, is there anybody you would like to hear on the show?
1: And I kind of want to interview you, Will, after
0: this. <laughs> I mean, that's not quite the answer that I was looking for, Joy, but... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I would love, I, w- I would have loved for you to interview David Graeber because I'm so, so obsessed with that book. Uh, but, you know, since you can't interview David Graeber, I would, I'd love for you to interview Nick Hayes, the guy that wrote this, this book of trespassing, because after he wrote that book, he wrote another book called The Trespasser's Guide. And I'd love to hear from him because he's been, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is communities that amount, you know, that, that, that convene communities. And in his guide to trespassing, you know, he highlights the Ramblers Association, the Outdoor Swimming Society, like all these super cool, you know, grassroots organizations that are, you know, forming community around around getting outside and reconnecting to nature. So Nick Hayes, I think you should interview him.
0: Yeah. Okay. great. Um, What I will add to that because I saw him like uh, one of the tweets that you're mentioning is John Mader. Um who Oh, you should
1: interview John.
0: I mean, I don't want to be funny, but he was maybe first on the list. I'm like I'm, I'm a huge fan of John. Um he's quite a busy man, so we didn't really get that positive a response to our interview request, but I
1: might I might I, I, a, I might
0: I, I might I might try again if he's uh, yeah, if he's, he's a big part of, of the early
1: majority um origin story because uh, okay. it never ever would have occurred to me to start my own business. And he's the first person that said to me, "You should, you should do that."
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm going to follow up on that. No, I'm I'm a massive fan from all his early work. So. Me too. Cool. Um, I think we're at time. So, Joy, final question: What's the best way of someone getting in touch with you?
1: Oh, um, I'm at Joy E Howard on Twitter. I'm at Joy Rocker on Instagram, and um, at Early Majority is how you can follow the company. And if you go to um, if you go to early majority on Twitter, I think there's a link to the discord and you can hop in the discord too. And I'm, I'm there a lot actually in the discord these days.
0: Yeah. Up in the discord. <laughs> <laughs> what is this new world we are in? Uh, <laughs> um, Weird. oh, so good. Joy, thank you so much. Um, for those who are listening, please show joy, some love. Uh, this has been great. We're, I mean, we, I could have talked for hours, but. We, all good things have got to come to an end um and yeah as i said appreciate you taking the time and we're going to be you know staying close to you know tracking your story um know yeah, with Only majority and, and wherever it goes next so thanks so much joy um yeah and i speak again soon
1: thank you take care
0: all right take care